0: Hey there, it's Takara here. Before we jump in, a brief note. This episode contains content that may be distressing to some people. Listener discretion is advised.
1: Many people recall the enormous fights around the Patients' Bill of Rights that never got done. Uh, Well, you know what? The Patients' Bill of Rights is embedded in this healthcare bill.
0: Back in 2010, President Barack Obama introduced the Affordable Care Act. We'll call it the ACA. It also included a patient's bill of rights. Now, that term might sound familiar. You might have seen the patient's bill of rights hanging on the wall when you've gone for, say, a checkup, or in the paperwork you've filled out when you met with a new doctor, or even when you visited a loved one in hospital. Nowadays, it's everywhere. Hospitals and doctor's offices all over the United States have been using their version of the patient's bill of rights for decades well before Obama was elected or the ACA was passed. If you don't already know, the Patients' Bill of Rights lays out standards and ethics of patient care. It says that as a patient, you have the right to be treated with respect and dignity, that you have the right to access your medical chart and a right to make decisions about your plan of care before and during treatment. Today, these things may seem standard, obvious even, But where did these rights come from? Who wrote them and commanded that hospitals and doctors' offices had to live up to these standards? Well, a lot of people don't know that the Patients' Bill of Rights was created by a group of young Black and Brown
2: activists. I think that the accurate history of the work that was done by the Black Panther Party and the Young Lords in the South Bronx and Harlem has never really been written.
0: I'm Takara Small, and from something else in Sony Music Entertainment, this is They Did That. On today's show, how Black and Puerto Rican activists from the 1960s reshaped American healthcare by taking
2: over a hospital in the Bronx. We were not gonna let them push us around. We were gonna stand up for ourselves.
0: We'll hear from one of the women behind the movement and how she played a part in creating the patients' Bill of Rights. Stay with us.
2: When you're helping other people, that is the greatest gift that you can give to society and to yourself.
0: That's Cleo Silvers. She's been fighting for social and economic justice pretty much all her life. As a little girl growing up just outside of Philadelphia in the 1950s, equality was always a topic that was top of mind.
2: I was so interested in the civil rights movement because it was on television. And you could see what was happening. You could see the dogs biting the civil rights workers that were just asking to go into a restaurant. And I was watching very carefully, and I was like, why? As a kid, Cleo couldn't
0: shake what she had seen, and she wanted to do something about it. Actually, she would do something about it. Her mind was made up. So over dinner one evening, she told her family that she had a plan.
2: I was about nine. I said uh, at the table, I would like to go down south and fight for civil rights. And my family was like, little girl, if you went down south and fought for civil rights, they would hang you immediately. You'd be lynched in two days because you got a big mouth.
0: (laughs) Cleo didn't head down south when she was nine. But a few years later, by the time she was 14, she was doing something about it.
2: I was a member of the group of children from my high school and junior high school that integrated American Bandstand. From Philadelphia, it's time for America's favorite dance party, American Bandstand.
0: For those of you who don't know, American Bandstand was the original music show, long before TRL or even Soul Train. The show premiered in 1952 and featured teenagers dancing around to live music from popular singers like Chuck Berry, Buddy Holly, and the Beach Boys. But for years, all the kids dancing on the show were white, that is until Cleo and her friends showed up.
2: So one day, we just pushed our way in when the door was open, and we just walked in. And finally, you know, our parents would say, I saw you, I saw you on bandstand.
0: For Cleo, that was just the beginning. After she graduated from high school, Cleo decided to chase her calling to help people. It was the mid-sixties, and she found her way into a program called Vista.
2: Vista is Volunteers in Service to America. And it was a domestic Peace Corps kind of a program. So it was for young, young college people who wanted to do something interesting and make a contribution to society.
0: Cleo signed up and was trained as a community organizer. Her first placement was in Baltimore, and then she eventually landed in New York City. There, she worked with a VISTA housing program that served the people of the South Bronx. Today, the South Bronx is the poorest congressional district in the United States. And back in the 1960s, things weren't much different. As a housing advocate, Cleo heard horror stories from the families in the area,
2: mainly poor, Puerto Rican, and Black folks. They would tell her things like, We don't have any heat and hot water. We're, everything's freezing up in my apartment. The rats are eating the babies' mouths because of the milk that the babies were drinking. And the rats were attracted to that.
0: These were horrific things to hear. But Cleo and the other advocates she worked with taught the community to organize. They showed the community how to demand that the city enforce building codes and hold landlords accountable. And it worked. But Cleo didn't stop there. When her time with Vista wrapped up in 1968, Cleo landed a job as a community mental health worker at Lincoln Hospital in the South Bronx. She probably didn't even realize it then, but this was going to be a place that would change her life and the world. With VISTA, Cleo was doing some amazing work.
2: I was responsible for working with young girls that were the victims of incest. We did individual therapy, we did group therapy with these young women. That kind of work can
0: be soul-crushing, but it didn't deter her.
2: I was 21 years old at that point and I was not scared. And I thought it would be better for these young girls to sit down with other young women and so that they could kind of see themselves as, as human beings. And I think we were successful.
0: Despite the work of Cleo and some of her colleagues, the hospital itself didn't have a good reputation in the neighborhood. Actually, that's an understatement.
2: Folks in the community would call the hospital the butcher shop of the Bronx. The reason that it was known as the Butcher Shop is because horrible things happened to people in Lincoln Hospital.
0: The problems at Lincoln started with the building itself.
2: Paint was falling off the walls. Rats, roaches, little children were uh, developing brain damage in the pediatric department. The walls of the children's ward were coated with lead paint. Their paint was uh, really thick. And they kept painting over and painting over and painting over. And also, the paint was sweet. So little kids would see chipping paint and uh, pick it up, and it was like candy, and they would suck on it. And would develop brain damage, because that's what lead poisoning does to you. At
0: least two kids developed lead poisoning while they were at the hospital. And sadly, the problems with Lincoln didn't stop there.
2: You could come into Lincoln Hospital for an amputation of your right leg, and your left leg would be amputated. You could have surgery and have um, a surgical instrument left in your body. You could wait for 72 hours in the emergency room and not be seen. Lincoln was overcrowded. It was the only hospital in the South Bronx,
0: an area made up of half a million people but it only had 350 beds. Sometimes that meant people were treated in the hallways in unsanitary conditions. The hospital, which was built in 1898, also faced frequent power outages. Elevators malfunctioned, and air conditioners in the surgical recovery rooms didn't even work.
2: There was no food or water available to you or child care, nothing available to you in the emergency room.
0: Things at Lincoln Hospital were obviously bad for the patients, but they weren't much better for the people who were working there, like Cleo. The hospital was short-staffed, and salaries were so low that most of the hospital staff qualified for public assistance. So in 1969, over 100 workers, I'm talking mental health counselors, Orderlies, administrative and janitorial staffers took action. They created a group called the Health Revolutionary Unity Movement or HRUM.
2: They were already planning the takeover when I came in. HRUM decided
0: that things at Lincoln had to change. They wanted higher wages, better training, and the construction of a new building. So they took matters into their own hands. The workers, Clio included, evicted the director of the hospital's mental health clinic and kicked out its high-ranking staff members. And they didn't stop there. They then ran the clinic for three days, allowing patients and doctors to come and
2: go. We took it over and carried on the services and expanded the services. For Cleo,
0: this was an important moment. She and her colleagues showed the hospital leadership, we can do this, and we can do it better.
2: That felt pretty good, pretty good. Because I, I knew that they were not doing a good job and that they really were not caring about the job that they did in the hospital and the quality of healthcare that was being delivered there.
0: But that kind of action takes some serious organization. It's not the kind of thing you can easily get right on the first try, either. So how did they do it? With help from the Black Panthers. The revolutionary 1960s organization lent their security to keep Lincoln's head honchos out of the clinic. And they brought food and supporters to folks in the hospital. And in Cleo, they saw someone who had the right stuff for a revolution.
2: They liked the way I worked on The Takeover. And they asked me if I would join the Black Panther Party. I think they really liked my organizing style, that I knew the people in the community, that I was sincere, and that I was working hard 24 hours a day. Cleo worked with the Black Panthers
0: and organized all over the city with them.
2: We designed a project where we went door to door and tested people in the communities in Lower East Side East Harlem, Harlem in the South Bronx, went and knocked on doors and tested people for preventable diseases.
0: Cleo loved being part of the Black Panthers. She felt proud of the work she was doing, and she could have worked with them forever, but for a fateful event that rocked the group, the Panther
2: 21. There was a big split in the Black Panther Party, and the New York branch got put out of the party. And that was during the time of the New York 21.
0: In the spring of 1969, just weeks after the clinic takeover, 21 members of the New York chapter of the Black Panther Party were arrested for allegedly conspiring to commit acts of mass violence. All of them were eventually acquitted. But the damage to the Panthers was permanent. The arrest got national attention, and caused a rift between the East Coast Panthers and party leadership in California. The East Coast Panthers were crippled by the arrests, and that meant no more door knocking or testing for preventable diseases. It could have all come to a halt right there. But then the Panthers introduced Cleo to some key allies so their work could go on.
2: The leadership took me over to the young Lord's office. And said, you know, this girl, she's doing great work. She's a great organizer, and we want her to continue to do her work. So would you take her? And the Young Lords, well, of course.
0: The Young Lords aren't as well known as the Black Panthers. They were Puerto Rican and Afro-Latine revolutionaries who modeled themselves off the Panthers and worked closely with them in cities across the country, including in New York. I
2: was running into... The Young Lords and the Black Panther Party during this time. I was running into them because we were organizing together in many instances.
0: So, after the Panther 21, Cleo became a Young Lord. She wasn't Puerto Rican or Latine, but she was an ally.
2: And I feel like as an African American, joining the Young Lords and working with the Young Lords really reflected uh, that struggle uh, for unity which was so important, I think was really, really important. All this
0: time, Cleo was still working at Lincoln Hospital, which was a good thing because the Lords were planning another takeover. But they weren't going to just take over the mental health clinic. No, this time they were going to seize control of the entire hospital.
2: It was very scary and we knew that the police were standing out. These huge numbers of police had surrounded the building.
0: That's next, after the break.
2: We all have questions that keep us up at night. The self-help industry tells us they have answers. As a journalist and a skeptic, I'm not so sure. So I've set out to talk to people who have gone to radical lengths to find answers. I'm Catherine Rowland. From Something Else and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Seeking. On Season 1, we're diving deep into the portal of plant medicine and psychedelics. Listen to Seeking wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Warning, this podcast contains juicy tales of a super dysfunctional family. Brothers betraying brothers, friends becoming enemies, and a mother trying her best to keep everything from falling apart. No, this isn't a reality TV rewatch. I'm Dan Jones, your host, and this is one of my all-time favourite true stories. Join me on a trip to the Middle Ages to meet history's most dangerous dynasty, the Plantagenets. This season, the plots are thicker, the ambitions greater, and the betrayals are even more devious in the epic saga of the family that shaped our world. From Something Else and Sony Music Entertainment, this is History, A Dynasty to Die For, Season 2. Listen and follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts.
0: Cleo and her colleagues were not pleased. After their impressive clinic takeover, things didn't seem to change at Lincoln. So the Young Lords and Atrium teamed up with a group of radical doctors at the hospital. Together, they set up a complaints table in the ER to hear from the community. And often, Cleo was running point. But the administration
2: wasn't happy about their staff soliciting complaints. Every day... The administration, they made the security guards come and take our table down and take it out. And finally, the security guard was like, Cleo, let me carry the table for you. I know you're coming back in.
0: More than 2,000 complaints were collected in just a few weeks. And just like that, Cleo and her team had receipts. She heard from people who were waiting for days in the ER to be seen. For the many Spanish-speaking members of the community— Their treatment wasn't even explained in a language they could understand.
2: We were intervening in situations where people didn't speak the language and the doctors were unable to speak to them.
0: In some cases, the complaints Cleo received showed just how dangerous things could be at Lincoln. For one thing, there was no triage in the emergency room. No triage! That's unbelievable!
2: People would come in, some would have a gunshot wound, some people have stab wounds, some people had the flu. And they never decided to to work on the person with the gunshot wound. They'd work on the person with the flu first. And so we would intervene, we'd like, no, you can't do that. You gotta work on this person here first, because they're bleeding.
0: And once again, the only word that comes to mind is unbelievable. Cleo also heard other disturbing things. Lincoln was a research hospital, and you might know where this is going. Some patients reported that they were placed in medical studies without their consent. Now, we've seen this before, and shamefully, Lincoln Hospital was another entry in the long history of experimenting on folks who don't have power. Day after day, Cleo and the other advocates collected these horror stories to show Lincoln leadership just how bad things were.
2: When we took all of our complaints to the administration. They just looked at us like we were crazy. They are like, huh, we, this is, we don't care.
0: All these specific, infuriating complaints did nothing. So a plot was hatched. If no one would help, if no one would listen, these activists would make them. And if the big wigs at Lincoln Hospital had been paying attention to what Cleo and her fellow young lords were up to, they might have seen their next action coming. Because they
2: had been busy. We were very organized, we were very well disciplined, and we had done things before. In
0: 1969, the lords took over a Harlem church in an 11-day occupation. They established free breakfast and clothing programs, health services, and a daycare center, services they say the city and community failed to provide. And they'd pulled off other actions too. Weeks before the Lincoln Hospital takeover, the Young Lords had hijacked a city-operated tuberculosis testing truck that somehow never seemed to make it into the barrio, areas of Harlem and the South Bronx where TB rates were three times the national average. They liberated the truck and took chest x-rays of hundreds of people in the community. All of which to say, the lords were ready to take their actions to the next level. This time, they were taking over the entire hospital. So on the evening of July 13th, 1970, the young lords gathered a few dozen activists in an apartment in central Harlem for a party. Or... At least that's what they said.
2: We got everybody in the room, and then we explained, no, this is not a party. We are going to take over Lincoln Hospital.
0: The activists might have been surprised, but they were ready and committed. Still, the Young Lords knew that authorities like the FBI and the NYPD were infiltrating radical groups, and they couldn't take a chance. So they took every precaution to make sure word about the takeover couldn't leak before it had begun. Starting by locking the doors of the party so no one inside
2: could exit. So if there was an agent inside there that was going to call and tell the police, an agent provocateur inside the organization, that they wouldn't be able to come out. There was nobody allowed to go in or out once they'd gotten into the party, quote-unquote party.
0: At around 3.30 in the morning, a U-Haul showed up. The apartment doors were finally unlocked and all the activists streamed out of the party, onto the street, and into the massive truck.
2: And we got in one by one, sitting in between each other's legs. There were maybe 50 or 60 of us. The activists filled the rental truck. They were packed in like
0: sardines. Inside the U-Haul, there was a mix of excitement, and fear.
2: Everybody was a little scared because, you know, doing something like this means you're going to probably get beaten up pretty badly by the police. They're really going to beat you and because you're attacking an institution and you're doing something that has never been done before.
0: In the dead of night, the U-Haul headed north to Lincoln. At 5 a.m., the truck backed into the hospital's loading dock, The doors opened, and the activists stormed the hospital like soldiers.
2: The takeover was smooth, almost instantaneous. It took 15 minutes. Quickly, they were able to get into the hospital, get into all of the areas of the hospital where they needed to be. The young
0: lord secured all the entrances and exits to the hospital. They put tape over the windows to obstruct views from the outside, and to block the doors, they made makeshift barricades out of furniture, boxes, and hundreds of industrial-sized bags of rock salt. They knew the police may try to enter, so they stood guard with nunchucks, bats, and rolled out the hospital's giant high-pressure fire hoses. But Cleo had a very specific role that I could only imagine might have been very satisfying. Cleo's job was to march into the administrator's office and tell them they needed to leave.
2: She told them, I don't know how they live with themselves, knowing what was going on. There was no care being delivered there to the people of the South Bronx. And it was the only hospital in the South Bronx. I escorted the... The administrator of the hospital helped him put his papers in his briefcase, handed him his briefcase. And with me, with my little team, I had a little team of security kids. We escorted the administrator outside to his car.
0: Quickly, the police and the media began to gather outside the hospital. The Young Lords wanted to catch the attention of reporters, So they made their way to the hospital's upper floors and hung a giant Puerto Rican flag outside the window and a banner that read in English and Spanish.
2: Welcome to the People's Hospital. Some of the workers hated us, but we gained the support of a a large number of workers inside the hospital because we helped them. You know, when you're delivering bad service, then it's not good for the workers either.
0: The activists kept one entrance of the hospital open to allow patients, doctors, and nurses to go in and out of the building. They weren't there to stop care, but to make a statement. At 10 o'clock that morning, the Young Lords held a press conference. The activists told reporters why they were there, that the state of the hospital was scandalous and that something needed to be done. They presented the complaints they collected and demanded, among other things, no cutbacks to services, daycare for patients and staffers, a community worker board to help run Lincoln, and the construction of a new hospital. Word spread through the barrio that the Lords had taken over the hospital, and hundreds of community members came to get tested for anemia, lead poisoning, and tuberculosis.
2: The delivery of healthcare continued the entire time that we were there.
0: After the press conference, the activists met with the mayor's office and the hospital administration and asked for their demands to be implemented, but they couldn't reach an agreement. After 12 hours, the activists needed to make an exit, and the stakes were high.
2: We were negotiating with the city to not get beat up when we came out of the hospital, and the police were not going to agree to not beat us up when we came out. And some of them did not agree to not shoot us. It was scary. The police
0: began to mobilize outside. They were preparing to bust through the doors with force. The young lords knew they needed to do something. Finally, a light bulb
2: moment. One of the docs had a great idea. Put on white coats and nurses' outfits. And at the change of shift, we'll all walk out and nobody will be able to tell who's who. And so that's what we did. It
0: was 5 o'clock by this point. The young lords knew that a new group of workers would be coming to the hospital to start the night shift. And that the previous shift of workers would be leaving to go home. If the lords could camouflage themselves into nurses' uniforms, scrubs, doctor's coats and stethoscopes, they could blend into the crowd and walk right out of the hospital. They opened up a backdoor exit the police had failed to protect and strolled out of Lincoln and onto the street. It worked.
2: They couldn't figure out who was a doctor and who was the young Lord. We walked out and looked like we were, you know, just another worker coming out of the place. And then when they went in, to get us. They were gonna beat us up inside the hospital. No, none of us were there. We were not there.
0: The activists made their way to the streets littered with baton-wielding police and evaporated into the crowds. Of the more than 200 people who occupied the building, only two were caught and arrested.
2: Thank goodness for people in the community we ran into people all over the, the area, and people let us into their apartments because the police were looking for us. And we were hiding out in people's apartments. When you do good things for the community, the community supports you.
0: But the Young Lord's victory was short-lived. The hospital kept running throughout the action and after, but their demands weren't answered in time. Less than a week after the takeover, Tragedy struck at Lincoln Hospital.
2: Carmen Rodriguez is murdered.
0: That's next, after the break. On July 17, 1970, a Puerto Rican woman named Carmen Rodriguez went to Lincoln Hospital for an abortion. She had rheumatic heart disease, and delivering the child would threaten her life. Carmen chose Lincoln because she had been to the hospital before. But the abortion procedure was carried out by a small group of medical residents
2: who were new and had little training. She had heart problems and some other real serious issues. She had high blood pressure. They agreed to do a saline abortion on her without reading her medical records, her medical history.
0: A saline-based abortion procedure isn't used today. But back in 1970, it was a technique used to end pregnancy in the few states that allowed abortion, like New York. Doctors inject a saline solution into the uterus to induce a miscarriage. Saline is a mixture of salt and water— and that injected saline doesn't stay in the
2: uterus. It goes into the bloodstream. And you know that salt impacts your blood pressure, and if you have a lot of saline injected into you, you're not going to survive. The doctors never saw Carmen's medical chart
0: and moved forward with the procedure, even though the salt solution could have harmed her. When she became short of breath, Doctors assumed that she had asthma, so they treated her for that. Since the residents never saw her medical chart, they had no way to know that the saline she was given could likely be fatal for a patient like Carmen who had had a heart condition. And it was. Carmen Rodriguez fell into a coma and died at Lincoln Hospital on July 19th, 1970.
2: She was 31 years old. It was such a huge thing. To have her die inside the hospital right after the takeover, right after all the demands that we gave to the hospital administration and to the city about the way the hospital treatment was going, to kill Carmen Rodriguez. It was a huge thing.
0: Carmen's treatment plan was never explained to her. She never had a chance to tell doctors about her condition.
2: Her death could have been avoided.
0: The news of Carmen's death at the butcher shop of the Bronx rocked the community.
2: The anger in the community went on for several days.
0: Protests erupted as the people of the South Bronx, the Young Lords, Rum, and other activists called for a better standard of care, so something like this would never happen again. And by late August, the groups had come to a consensus on a lasting document, the Patients' Bill of Rights. Cleo was one of the drafters, and it called for patients to have the following rights:
2: to be treated with dignity and respect, to have all treatment explained to you and to refuse any treatment you feel is not in your best interest, to know what medicine is being prescribed for you and what it is for and what side effects it will cause, to have access to your medical records, to your medical chart. To have door-to-door preventive medicine programs, to choose the doctor you want to have and to have the same doctor treat you all the time, to be able to call your doctor at home, to receive free meals and water while you're waiting for outpatient service, to have free daycare centers in all hospital facilities. And then number 10, to receive free health care. That health care is a right and that everyone should have free quality health care.
0: Carmen's death received national attention. The young Lord's takeover of the hospital was already in the news. And given all of this, the activists' calls for a patient's bill of rights also garnered national attention. And people finally listened. In just three years, the American Hospital Association, or AHA, formally adopted a version of the Patient's Bill of Rights. And today...
2: The Patient's Bill of Rights can be found in every hospital in the United States now. Of course, it's significantly watered down from the original Patient's Bill of Rights, but it is in every hospital, and it can be found posted in most hospital rooms.
0: The Patients' Bill of Rights even made it up to my country, Canada. It was adopted as part of our national health care in 1984. The modern Patients' Bill of Rights listed in hospitals today does include several things that Clio outlined, including the right to considerate and respectful care, the right to understandable information about treatments and diagnoses, and the right to review medical records and to have consistent care. The AHA's Patients' Bill of Rights also recognizes that people have the right to bring disputes and grievances to patient representatives and ethics committees, something that was established by Cleo's complaint table at Lincoln Hospital and the public hearing following Carmen Rodriguez's death.
2: Patients' Bill of Rights is actually something that is helpful to, to all people, not just to poor people, not just to the disenfranchised or not just to to communities of color, but to everyone.
0: Today, in addition to hospitals, most U.S. states from New York to Texas have introduced laws that enshrine a version of the patient's Bill of Rights. The activists also got another victory in 1976. A new Lincoln Hospital was opened in the Bronx. But Cleo isn't satisfied. Not yet, at least. She's still hoping that the last tenant of one of the first Patients' Bill of Rights, the right to receive free health care, will one day be recognized throughout the United States.
2: I don't care who you are. I don't care what your economic and social conditions are. You deserve to have quality health care. Everyone does. Free health care in most countries exists. We are the last holdout for giving free quality healthcare to our people. It could be done in the United States. For Cleo, this is all about fairness, which has always been my quest from the time that I was 9 years old. I always wanted things to be more fair, and that means more equitable so the next time you're in a hospital or at a
0: doctor's office and you see a patient's bill of rights hanging on the wall, you'll know that you can thank Cleo and the young black and brown radicals she work with. Because after a long struggle, they did that. On our next episode, everyone was against him you can't literally outrun everyone so if you can't outrun everyone what do you do you outsmart them they did that is presented by me takara small this episode was written and produced by tj Raphael. our associate producers are serena chow and india witkin this episode was edited by tiara darnell with additional editing by lizzie jacobs executive producers are lizzie jacobs and tom koenig Engineering and sound design by Rick Kwan. Our production coordinator is Lily Hambly. And our original theme song is by Cedric Wilson.